I want to begin this morning in verses 9 through 11 in order to get a glimpse of just what is at stake in this passage. Beginning in verse 9, Paul writes, You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if, in fact, the Spirit of God dwells in you. Anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to him. But if Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, the Spirit is life because of righteousness. If the Spirit of Him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, He who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through His Spirit who dwells in you. A lot rides on whether or not you're included in those phrases that begin with the word, if. You see, with the stroke of a pen, Paul divides humanity into two distinct groups. Those who are in the flesh, and those who are in the Spirit. Those who have the Spirit of Christ, and therefore belong to Christ. And those who do not have the Spirit of Christ, and therefore do not belong to Christ. And the consequences of this separation, of this division, are staggering. Nothing less is at stake than resurrection unto eternal life. Whether God raises you from the dead unto everlasting life or not depends entirely on whether you are in the flesh or in the spirit. Whether or not the spirit of Christ dwells in you, breathing life into your soul now and raising your mortal body up from the grave on the last day. Paul's entire purpose in these first 11 verses of Romans 8 is to demonstrate that the Christian life is a life lived in the Spirit. There is nothing good or holy or redemptive that takes place in the Christian life apart from the Spirit's indwelling presence and power. Every aspect of our salvation from first to last is a work of the Holy Spirit and not a work of the flesh. For example, let's just trace Paul's flow of argument here beginning in verse 1. The removal of our condemnation, which was owing us due to our sins, is a work of the Spirit and not a work of the flesh. Paul says in verse 1, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Why? For the law of the Spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. Your flesh didn't do that. Your will didn't do that. The Spirit did that. In other words, our justification, that is the removal of our condemnation, occurred when the Spirit of life set you free from the law of sin and death. So our justification, our right standing before God is grounded in the work of God in Christ applied to us by the power of the Spirit. Paul goes on, for what God has done, or for God has done what the law weakened by the flesh could not do, by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh, and for sin he condemned sin in the flesh. In order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh, but according to 
the Spirit. Our flesh could not obey the law. It could not satisfy the law's righteous demands. In your own natural state, it was outside of your ability or your desire to love God with all of your heart, soul, mind, and strength and to love your neighbor as yourself. You couldn't do it. You didn't want to do it. So God took matters into his own hands. He condemned our sin in the flesh of his son and he gave us the spirit in order that we may be empowered to walk according to the spirit's power and will and thereby fulfill the righteous requirement of the law, namely to love God supremely and to love others selflessly. Thus, our sanctification, like our justification, is a work of the Spirit and not a work of the flesh. If you are not indwelt by the Holy Spirit, if the Spirit's power is not at work within you, you cannot fulfill the law. You cannot walk in love. You can't love others truly apart from the Spirit's power. The best you can do is use others. Loving them not for who they are, but for what they can give you. Finally then, according to Paul in verse 11, it is the Spirit who raised Jesus from the dead who will also raise your mortal body from the grave, if you have lived by the Spirit. In other words, not only our justification and not only our sanctification, but according to Paul in verse 11, also our glorification is a work of the Spirit. So the obvious question just screaming at us out of verses 1 to 11 with all of those ifs, if you walk according to the Spirit, if the Spirit of God dwells in you, if Christ is in you, the question screaming at us is, is that true of me? Am I in the flesh or am I in the Spirit? Does the Spirit of God dwell in me? And how might I know? Well, that's what verses 5 through 8 are for. They provide an explanation for that contrast which Paul introduced in verse 4 between those who walk according to the flesh and those who walk according to the Spirit and why those who walk according to the flesh cannot fulfill the righteous requirement of the law. If you read verse 4 and you ask, well, why not? Verses 5 through 8 exist to answer your question. What does it mean to walk according to the flesh? What does it mean to walk according to the Spirit? And this time, you don't need me to remind you of the relevance, the importance of examining examining yourself with regard to this question, because Paul then continues right on in verses 9 through 11 to stake your eternal salvation, justification, sanctification, resurrection, glorification. He stakes it all on whether or not the Holy Spirit dwells in your soul. So we've got to get this answer right. Perhaps it would help us to begin by defining our terms. What does Paul mean by the flesh? Well, flesh, as Paul is using it here in Romans 8, has nothing to do with your physical body. That's not what he's talking about. Rather, it is your fallen human nature which you inherited from Adam. According to John Murray, it is human nature as controlled and directed by sin. 
In other words, the flesh that Paul speaks of in Romans 8 is not something you can see. It's not something you can touch. It's not something you can isolate under a microscope. It's not something you can locate on a chart of human anatomy. It's metaphysical, like mind or soul. But though you cannot see it and you cannot touch it, you cannot either deny its reality. What is it that makes a toddler defiant? Surely you're not teaching them to be so. What is it that makes a child selfish? That's my toy. What is it that makes us deceitful, self-centered, lustful, proud, arrogant, treacherous, gluttonous, evil? It's the flesh. The flesh is our soul, corrupted, infected, diseased, controlled by inordinate desires. That, are, that, are, that is, desires that are out of order, out of control. Luther's favorite description was that, of the flesh is that it is the soul deeply curved in on itself. In other words, the soul he envisioned as being like a flower. It's designed, created by God to open up towards God, Right? Instead, because of the fall, it curves in on itself. Like a child with severe scoliosis cannot stand up straight, so a soul that is bent by sin cannot desire rightly. It has curved or bent desires, not straight desires. When Adam, whose soul was created straight and upright, chose to turn away from God, it's as if his soul slipped a disc and he was permanently bent, just wrenched out of shape. And from that time forward, all who are born in Adam, that's all of us, inherit, inherit that bent nature, the flesh. Well, what is the spirit? Well, Paul is not here speaking in terms of the human soul or the human spirit when he, when he sets up this contrast in verses 5 through 8. He's not talking about that metaphysical component of our existence that thinks and feels and reasons. He's referring to the third person of the Trinity. It should be a capital S in your Bibles. He's referring to the Holy Spirit who regenerates and indwells and begins to unbend the human soul. So to be in the Spirit, verse 9a, to have the Spirit of God dwell in you, verse 9b, to have the Spirit of Christ, verse 9c, to have Christ in you, verse 10, to have the Spirit of Him who raised Jesus from the dead dwell in you, all refers to the same reality. When God regenerates a sinner, when, when a sinner is born again by the power and the will of God, the Holy Spirit comes upon that soul into that soul. It's hard to use spatial categories for metaphysical realities, but you see what I'm talking about. Comes, comes upon or into that soul that, that otherwise is spiritually lifeless and bent, and he awakens it, he quickens it, he enlivens it. He awakens that soul to spiritual life, and he begins to, to straighten it. He begins to, to heal it. Now the Bible, I'm using kind of scoliosis 
metaphor this morning, but the Bible uses a number of different metaphors, a number of different analogies to speak of this reality of the new birth, of the indwelling effect of the Holy Spirit. But one of the clearest is found in Ezekiel 36. You don't have to turn there, but I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to read it to you. Where God promises that in the new covenant, Ezekiel 36, 26, I will give you a new heart. And a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh. And I will insert, I will give you a heart of flesh. So the metaphor he's using here is kind of like a heart transplant. And I will put my spirit within you. The Holy Spirit. And that indwelling presence of the Holy Spirit will cause you to walk in my statutes, and to be careful to obey my rules. You see how the Spirit is unbending the soul that was bent by the flesh? In the new birth, the Holy Spirit comes to a, to a heart or to a soul that is hard and calcified by sin and lifeless towards God, and He vivifies it. He brings it to life. Can't help but think of the black and white version of Dr. Frankenstein was like, it's alive, right? It's, that's what happens. Stick to your manuscript. Sorry. God transforms it into a heart of flesh that begins to beat and throb and course with the life of God. And in some mysterious manner that defies explanation and is beyond our comprehension, that that new living pulsating heart becomes the temple of the Holy Spirit who indwells it by his power and his presence in a way that is analogous to the way in which the glory of God used to indwell the Holy of Holies in the Old Covenant temple. So these two realities, life in the flesh and life in the spirit, Paul opposes to one another in the starkest of contrasts. So to be in the flesh is to be unregenerate, not born again, dead in trespasses and sins. It's to not belong to Christ, verse 9. To be in the spirit is to be born again. It's to be a Christian. It's to belong to Christ. But how can we tell whether we're in the flesh or whether we're in the spirit? Well, Paul describes these two realities not only as a state of being, but as a way of living. Those who are in the flesh walk according to the flesh, and those who are in the spirit walk according to the spirit. So you can discern your state of being by examining your way of living. So what does it mean to walk according to the flesh, and what does it mean to walk according to the Spirit? In verses 5 to 8, Paul highlights four characteristics of each. Number one, they have different mindsets. Those who walk according to the flesh set their mind on one thing. Those who set their mind on this, or walk according to the Spirit set their minds on another. Sin occupies the thoughts and inflames the desires of those who are in the flesh. Righteousness occupies the thoughts and stokes the affections of those who are in the spirit. Verse 5, for those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh, but those who live according to the spirit set their minds on the things of the spirit. There's a very strong connection between what you think and what you do and 
who you are. Proverbs 23, 7 in the King James says, For as a man thinks in his heart, so is he. You are what you think. Jesus said the same thing in Matthew 12, 34. For out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. A man thinks about what he loves, and those thoughts give birth to words and actions. If you sow a thought, you're going to reap an action. If you sow an action, you're going to reap a habit. If you sow a habit, you're going to reap a character. And if you sow a character, you'll end up reaping a destiny. Thoughts, in other words, determine destinies. Therefore, the clearest evidence of one's spiritual state is found in the mind. What kind of thoughts occupy your mind and engage your affections? What do you love? When your mind is unengaged by the duties of of daily life, and it's just sort of free to wander wherever it will, where does it go? To what is it naturally drawn? According to Paul, the minds of those who live according to the flesh are naturally drawn to the things of the flesh, and those whose minds or the minds of those who live according to the spirit are naturally drawn to the things of the spirit. So what are the things of the flesh and what are the things of the spirit? Well, here I think we're helped by Galatians 5 and here I am going to have you turn with me. Uh, just Three books over in the New Testament. So head to the right in the New Testament, about 25 pages or so, to Galatians chapter 5. And I want you to look with me at verses 19 to 24. It's a very similar passage to the present one in Romans chapter 8. And Paul's going to help us wrap our minds around what our fleshly loves and what our spiritual loves, what our fleshly fruits and what our spiritual fruits. Starting in verse 19 of Galatians chapter 5, Paul says, now the works of the flesh are evident. Let me paraphrase that. It's not hard to make this differentiation. It's it's clear. Sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. I warn you, as I warned you before, that those who do such things, and I will insert here from Romans 8, 5, and those who set their minds on such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law, and those who belong to Christ have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. I want you to notice a couple of things about Galatians 5. First, I want you to notice that the works of the flesh run the gamut of sins from those of a sexual nature to those of a spiritual nature to those dealing with our relationships to those dealing with our fleshly appetites. All of them are rooted in the flesh, that unregenerate soul that is turned in on itself, that is self-gratifying to the core. So when you hear things of the flesh, those who live according to the flesh, set their mind on the things of the flesh, don't automatically insert only sex. 
It refers to any self-gratifying desire which comes at the expense of the glory of God and the good of others. It's anything that's not commensurate with love. Second, I want you to notice that the works of the flesh have their origin in the heart and the mind. Because verse 24 says, those who belong to Christ have crucified, that is put to death, the flesh with its passions and desires. He's not just talking about actions here. He's saying those who belong to Christ have attacked the weed at the root. They've attacked actions at the level of thoughts. Contrary to that, those who have the spirit and his presence within them find him producing with them new attitudes and new thoughts, many of which you'll notice are others-oriented, like love, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness. This is one of the reasons why the best way to determine whether you're in the flesh or whether you're in the spirit is to get around people and see if you love them, if you're patient towards them, if you're kind to them, if you're good to them. In Philippians 4.8, Paul again speaks to what occupies the mind. Finally, brothers, Whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, think about these things. In other words, those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on things that are good and true and beautiful. Consequently, because thoughts determine destinies, their lives become good and true and beautiful. So they have different mindsets, which brings me to the second characteristic that differentiates those who are in the flesh from those who are in the spirit. Their respective lives give off two totally different aromas. Verse 6, for to set the mind on the flesh is death, but to set the mind on the spirit is life and peace. Now, why do I use the word aroma? Well, I want you to notice that Paul does not say that the mind that is set on the flesh leads to death. Or that the mind that is set on the spirit leads to life and peace. Rather, he says the mind that is set on the flesh is death. And the mind that is set on the spirit is life and peace. In other words, I don't think he's here yet talking about eternal destinies. I think he's talking about the immediate effect of such a life. I think a good way to translate this sentence might be to turn those nouns into adverbs and have something like this. The mind that is set on the flesh is deadly. And the mind that is set on the spirit is life-giving and peaceful. I think that captures Paul's point. And that's what made me think of 2 Corinthians 2, 14 to 16. It's another passage where Paul speaks of the effect of the lives of believers on those around them. He says, believers give off a distinctive aroma. Their lives have an aromatic quality that some find wonderful and some find noxious. 2 Corinthians 2.14, but thanks be to God who in Christ always leads us in triumphal procession and through us spreads the fragrance, the aroma of the knowledge of him everywhere. For we are the aroma of Christ to God among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. To one, a fragrance of death to death, and to the other, a fragrance of life to life. Paul's saying that Christians give off a distinctive aroma. It's the fragrance of God. 
And they give it off everywhere they go. But this fragrance smells differently to different people depending upon their spiritual state, whether they are being saved or whether they are perishing, whether they are of the spirit or whether they are of the flesh. To those who are being saved, Christians smell like life. And they bring forth more life. Life to life, he says. But to those who are perishing, Christians smell like death. And they seem to bring forth more death, death to death. In other words, Christians increasingly smell like Christ. And so, people's reactions to us are going to be similar to people's reactions to him. Not everybody liked the way Jesus smelled. What was the reaction of the poor, the broken, the humble to Jesus? When he walked by, what aroma did they smell? They smelled life and peace, hope forgiveness, redemption. He smelled like love. On the contrary, what was the reaction of the Pharisees and of the proud and the arrogant to Jesus? When he walked by, they hated him because he smelled like death and judgment. The same principle is at work in believers, which only makes sense because Christians, Romans 8, 9, are those who have the spirit of Christ dwelling in them. And that's what I think of when I read Romans 8, 6. I think of the distinctive aroma of a life that is ruled by the flesh and the distinctive aroma of a life that is ruled by the spirit. The lives of those who set their minds on the flesh emit the fragrance of death. The lives of those who set their minds on the things of the spirit emit the fragrance of life and peace. Now, of course, what you smell depends on the spiritual state in which you exist. But when Paul smelled Christians, he smelled life and peace. And when he smelled those who were of the flesh, he smelled death and judgment. Christians, to those who are of the flesh, smell like conviction, which is why Christians are so often accused of being judgmental even before they've uttered a word. Their life of holiness is a standing condemnation of the wicked. But the principle remains... Our lives give off distinctive odors, distinctive aromas. So what kind of aroma does your life give off? It's a question you should be asking yourself. Does it give off the aroma of life and peace, of goodness and truth and beauty? When people hang out with you, are they edified, built up, encouraged, given hope? Or are they depleted and discouraged and defiled? Are they brought nearer to Christ and so feel alive and at peace? Or do they feel like they've been wading through the cesspool of filth that is your mind and is your speech? Is your mind a garden giving off the aroma of life and peace? Or is it a landfill giving off the odor of death and decay? Third, these two lives have different masters. They have different allegiances. They're ruled by different lords. Verse 7 For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God. It does not submit to God's law. I don't think most Christians believe that statement, frankly. Paul here unequivocally states that the mind that is set on the flesh, all right, we're talking about an unregenerate, unbelieving, non-Christian, is in a state of hostility towards God. Such a person resents God's rule, rejects his rule, and actively rebels against God's 
rule. What Paul is saying here is that there is no neutrality when it comes to God. Nobody is a spiritual Switzerland able to remain neutral in this great conflict between the axis of good and evil. Jesus famously stated it like this in Matthew 12, 30, whoever's not with me is against me, and whoever does not gather with me scatters. And didn't that mentality just undergird his entire ministry? Jesus permitted no fans, only followers. And I think this is probably most evident in John chapter 6, which begins with thousands upon thousands of Galilean Jews just flocking to Jesus out on the, on the countryside, the hillsides, because John 6, 2, they saw the signs that he was doing. They were impressed by Jesus. They were fans of Jesus. But by the end of John chapter 6, Jesus has all but driven them away. He's driven away the, the crowds by the thousands with his radical teaching and his radical demands of discipleship until there are only 12 left. And one of them, by Jesus' own admission, is the devil who's going to betray him, speaking of Judas. And like I said, I don't think most people think this is true. I'd be willing to bet that if you were to walk up to any non-Christian in our culture, and they're going to be hard uh, to find anyone who will admit who will own up to being a non-Christian, but that's a different sermon for a different day. But what I'm talking about is someone who does not follow Jesus in any discernible way, only has a vague belief in God and a vague knowledge of Jesus. If you were to walk up to such a person and say to them, you hate God, which is what it means to be hostile to God, right? You're opposed to God. You are anti-God, according to Romans 8, 7. In your mind, in the essence of your being, you are hostile towards him. They're going to respond with something like, what? I don't hate God. I love God, and God loves me. In other words, most people do not feel that they have active enmity towards their creator. Why? I suggest to you it's because they don't know God. Their God... The God of their own mind is a God of their own making. He's an idol. He's a figment of their imagination. He's fashioned, ironically enough, in their own image. In other words, their God is pretty much who they would be if they were God. You know, benevolent and indulgent, but not holy. Were they to be suddenly confronted with the true God, God as he reveals himself to be in the pages of Scripture, which they've never seriously read, they would know what Romans 8-7 means. They would hate him. They would be hostile towards him. Feelings of hatred would rise violently to the surface. Why? Because the true God, the God of the Bible, is fundamentally opposed to their ruling principle. Namely, that they exist as the center of their own universe, the Lord of their own life. And so when someone who thinks that, when someone who is radically bent in on themselves is confronted with God's demands of absolute supremacy and absolute sovereignty and absolute obedience and worship, they would reject him just like Adam did in the garden. And according to Paul, this fundamental hostility is evidenced by the refusal to submit to God's law. The mindset on the flesh does not want to do as God says, to live according to God's rule. 
Why? Because it wants to rule itself. It wants God to either approve of their own chosen lifestyle or else just mind his own business. And if you doubt this, walk up to someone whose lifestyle is in opposition to the word of God and inform them that if they want to be saved, if they want to be accepted by God, they must repent and see what reaction that elicits. I bet it'll be something like hostility. It'll be very clear to you that they do not really think that God has the right or the authority to tell them what to do, how to live, or who to sleep with. But Paul very quickly had something else, and it's important. Not only is the mind set on the flesh hostile towards God such that it does not and will not submit to God's law, Paul says indeed it cannot. It's simply not in its nature. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God. It does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. What we're talking about here is the doctrine of total depravity. When we say that a sinner is totally depraved, we don't mean that they're as evil as they could possibly be. That's clearly not true. Nor do we mean that they're incapable of doing anything good, which is also clearly not true. The image of God in man remains at least somewhat intact, such that even after the fall, men are capable of great acts of wisdom and benevolence and courage and heroism. What we mean when we say that sinners are totally depraved is that every man in their soul is so infected by sin and gripped by its power that they cannot submit to God as God. They cannot bow their will to God as their sovereign ruler, nor love God as their supreme treasure. To return to the earlier analogy, the soul that is in the power of the flesh is incurably bent in on itself like a spine in the grip of severe scoliosis. They can't just straighten it. Doug Moo says, all people by nature derived from Adam are incurably bent toward their own good rather than the good of others or of God. The various sins to which we are attracted, desire for riches or station in life or power or sexual pleasure, are but different symptoms of the same sickness, this idolatrous bent towards self-gratification. So if this is the case, it should be obvious that those who are in the flesh cannot cure themselves. They cannot escape the law of sin and death, verse 2. They cannot fulfill the righteous requirement of the law, verse 4, namely the law of love. They cannot submit to God's law, verse 8, or verse 7. They cannot please God, verse 8. If they are to be healed then, if they are to be saved, it's got to come from entirely outside of them. The law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus must set them free from the law of sin and death. I want you to remember this point. Maybe maybe underline verse 8 in your Bibles because it's this truth which explains why salvation must depend upon the election of God rather than the supposedly free will of man. Surely, verses 7 and 8 show us that if salvation had been left to our own choice, none of us would have submitted to God. Indeed, we could not. 
We are only free to do what is in our nature to do, and it is not in the nature of sinful men to submit to God, says the apostle in verse 8. What we need first is a change of nature. We need to be set free by the law of the spirit of life from the law of sin and death. Only then can we submit to God as our sovereign ruler and love God as our supreme treasure. So verses 5 to 8 explain why those who walk according to the flesh cannot fulfill the righteous requirement of the law, while those who walk according to the Spirit can and, in fact, do. Those who are in the flesh have neither the inclination nor the ability to love God supremely or to love others sacrificially and selflessly. Those who are in the Spirit do have that ability. Christians do. And so Paul ends this passage by making it plain that to be a Christian is to be indwelt by the Spirit. Verse 9, you, however, are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if in fact the Spirit of God dwells in you. Anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to him. I'm going to take those words spoken to the Romans and I'm going to turn them around and speak them to you. You... First Baptist Nixa, you visitors, friends, guests, you are not in the flesh. You're in the spirit. You can please God. You can keep his law. You can fulfill its righteous requirements. You can love others selflessly and sacrificially. You can love God supremely. You can submit to God as your sovereign ruler and love him as your supreme treasure. You can. If the Spirit of Christ dwells in you. So does he? Well, let me ask you four questions. Are your thoughts occupied by spiritual things or by fleshly things? Does your life give off the aroma of life and peace or death and decay? Do you love God and desire to have fellowship with him? Or when confronted by the God of Scripture, are you repulsed by him? Is your life submitted to the rule and reign of Christ, exercised through his word? Now, the work of the indwelling spirit does not take place all at once. You're going to look at those four questions, and if you're a Christian, you're going to say this, something like this. Yes, maybe, not very much. In other words, there's going to be a sense in which you're going to look at those and there's going to be something within you that says, I see that. I see that at work in me and oh, it's so weak and it's so feeble and it's so half-hearted and I'm so disappointed in it. And the reason why that is, is because the indwelling spirit by his own sovereign wisdom has determined to transform you bit by bit throughout the remaining course of your life. So don't expect to answer any one of those questions perfectly. But, 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 don't think that they can't be answered substantively and really. For if Christ is in you, although your body is dead because of sin, the spirit within you is life because of righteousness. Verse 10. 
And if the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal body through his spirit who dwells in you. Verse 11. 